one incarnation. It's always in culture when it appears again, but it, it ties together potentially. You get the, the, the wonderful passages in the book of Revelation about people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And you think, well, gosh, you know, if you stop to think about that, when in human history have people from every tribe, tongue, and nation actually gotten along with each other? Well, there's the genius of Christianity. It's a Christianity that enters in and gathers in the world culture. So. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. What happens when what we claim to believe doesn't match up with the way we live? When we claim to believe in a new birth through Christ, but still cling to beliefs, ways of looking at the world, and even actions that are a whole lot worse than simply just being problematic. What caused evangelicalism to become so politicized in the United States? And should we even call ourselves evangelicals anymore? If you thought part one of my conversation with Mark was complicated, well, I hate to say it, but it's going to get a whole lot more complicated. However, very insightful. But before we get to that, we do need your help in order to bring you conversations like this one. Go to apolloswater.org and click the support us button. Or simply click the link in your show notes. And know by doing that, you become a waterer to the world. Standing in the dry places, pouring out the water of life to bring water where life is languishing. Now, let's get to the second part of my conversation with Mark Knoll. Happy listening. I think Lausanne gives an umbrella for global evangelicalism in which it makes a big tent. And I also like their theme, the whole gospel to the whole world. And I think that modern contemporary American white evangelicals have isolated the gospel to one small aspect of what the gospel really is. And I think that Lausanne broadens that and shows how big it really actually is. And it really does try to bring in other voices that I think strengthens the church and our view of God and our understanding of God. And it also joins us to a greater movement that's not just culturally tied to one moment or one specific ethnic group or region, but enables people to show the reality of the gospel in their specific sphere of influence and how the gospel is impacting that people, place, group, culture, whatever you want to use as a definer there. And I think that's a sad thing, really. I think in our current cultural moment, as you mentioned, with the fragmentation of evangelicalism or the politicization of it uh, that it's gone on and how it's been co-opted by the media or even defined itself. Like it's been in some ways stolen from those who would be the adherents of it and redefined in a way that I think some would agree to while others would pull back from because of the political characterization and which it's gone and the figures in which it's been associated with and how it's been culturally manipulated or used it was mentioned in the book, and I can't remember what chapter it was, where they looked at the Southern strategy by Republicans in order to manipulate the evangelical group in order to get it to vote for certain causes. That brings a set of repulsion to me as an individual. And it made me stop and go, I don't want to be defined that way. I mean, I think anyone 
has a hard time being defined by an outward group in a negative way. But I do think that it made me pause and go, okay, what does it mean? Can we rescue the term? And because to me, that's one of the biggest issues that we have right now is we're, we're talking about this identification. I mean, even if you go on Twitter, it's all arguing over terms and words and verbiages and labels and everything else. That's the world in which we're living in. It's these, these battles over, I mean, pronouns is what we're battling over and self-identity. Can I choose to identify in this way and identify that way? And even when we're looking at history, and in some ways we are labeling and identifying what that is, but we have the opportunity or the advantage of labeling something that's not fighting back (laughs) and that it's dead. It's gone. You know, we can label it and call it whatever in some ways what we want it to be. And those are the historians that do that. So we're in this lived moment. That's also mentioned in here that Christianity is a, or evangelicalism is a lived religion. Elaborate. I know that's not a chapter that you wrote in this book, but I think it's imperative and important for us to understand what does it mean to be a lived faith? in this moment when it comes to understanding or self-identifying under this term of evangelicalism? Yes. Uh, I mean, the, the, the lived component would, would uh, relate to a very strong historical precedence where people who are known for defining themselves in relationship to God's free grace in Christ have, in many instances, taken certain actions in, in society and an organization of their families and uh, approaching to life in the world that c- carry on the, the meaning, extend the meaning of reconciliation between individuals and God to reconciliation among individuals on the earth. But that, that way of framing things means, well, we're, we're back to the Franciscans in the Middle Ages because they were known as evangelicals partly for what they, they believed, but more for how they acted. And you, you come to the, to the Protestant Reformation, you know, Martin Luther is a, is a fountainhead of what are later considered to be essential evangelical traits. Uh, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to follow Martin Luther in how he, late in his life, began to attack the Jews. I mean, there, uh, yeah, from, from, from his angle, he was following through consistently. From my angle, that was a gross deviation. But when, when Martin Luther uh, writes to his barber and, and he offers them a scriptural account of how Christ stands with the brokenhearted, Christ is, is with those who have suffered great trauma, then you say, well, there, from my perspective, is evangelical action that comports with the evangelical belief in how people are reconciled to God. You come in, in into uh, later history, and 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 uh, again, you just have to emphasize the complexity of things. You know, it takes time to, to explain. George Whitfield is is an evangelical and in, insisting upon the new birth is a key matter. And then, in the generation after Whitfield, there'll be a few people who take that very seriously and say, "Well, if if we're talking about God's valuation of people." such that Christ died that they could be born again, don't we want to follow through and say that that the human dignity implied really speaks against the enslavement of black Africans? And so there is, by the end of the 18th century, evangelical, some evangelical, joined by some Quakers who aren't real evangelical, a a kind of active anti-slavery. 
But and here you just gotta talk about the complexity. George Whitfield himself is empathetic to people in enslavement, but also is a defender eventually of the slave system in the American colonies. So is George Whitfield an evangelical? Well, clearly he is in emphasizing the new birth, but in Lausanne covenant terms, when Whitfield turns from being sympathetic to enslaved people and chastising slave owners for mistreatment of their enslaved people, while he defends the slave system, you'd say that's not very evangelical. The action is not comporting with the doctrine. Now, that, that of course, is, a, is, is my reading of the historical situation. There would be others right through the 19th century, and you can even find a few today, Bible believers who would say, well, if you read the Bible very carefully, you can see that the scriptures really do not rule out slavery as a system of organizing labor. That was a very common conclusion, north as well as south, among white people through the Civil War, and it continues to be a conclusion. There were people at the time who pointed out, well, well, you know, whatever the Bible has to say about slavery, it's always white people doing it to white people, or Caucasians doing it to Caucasians. And here, here, here we're talking about a slave system set up that enslaves only African. Can that be approved by, well, then there's huge, huge debate. So the debates were coming out of the, the uh, impulse that, that you were talking about. If you have a, an evangelical understanding of God's free grace in Christ given to unworthy sinners, you're saying something really definite about the value of unworthy sinners, all human unworthy sinners. And if, if you believe in, in that kind of value, God-given image of God, possibility to be redeemed in all humanity, how, how can you undermine that sense by practicing a form of racially specific slavery in which many of the uh, very express commands of the Bible about paying laborers, where they're hired, so on and so forth. Are, 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 well, so it's a debate, you can see, it's, it's a debate. But your sense that evangelical has to mean something in practice is why people who agreed on the evangelical character of the belief argued so much about and had such really bitter battles as to what it means to live as a, as a faithful Christian. And in the 20th century, we, 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 got, we had the same thing. Early, early part of the 20th century, uh, historians talk blithely, quickly about the fundamentalist modernist controversy. It's really not, never that simple. But a fundamentalist will be, would be characterized as someone who thinks the great sins in life are drunkenness, wasting your time on worldly entertainments. Whereas other branches of Protestant Christian Christianity, Catholic Christianity would say, the great evils of life are when you, you run a business and, and keep pushing down, lowering wages for your, for your workers. Or, or you, you allow cities to develop with, with no concern for how women are being mistreated and, and uh, non-whites are being mistreated. Well, that, that, that's a modernist way of trying to put Christianity to use, so-called, and a fundamentalist so-called way of trying to put Christianity to use, but they're both coming out of the sense that if, if, if you have a belief 
and how God reconciles people to himself. And you've got to have a practice. I think one of the really great uh, contributions of historical scholarship in in, uh, America is to see how clearly evangelical in their traditions were the modernists. Because they were the people who were taking action on things like urban development, economic life, following right in the tradition of people like Charles Grandison Finney, who said, well, slavery is terrible. And, of course, the fundamentalists are coming right out of the evangelical tradition in, in what, what they, they emphasize. So the, the debates in Christian circles are often about beliefs. And that those are, of course, very important debates. But almost always also, those arguments about belief are come along with arguments about what it means to put the faith into practice. Evangelical traditions are traditions that see the necessity of living out in the world according to the principles, standards, guidance, models found in the belief. The only Christian groups who do that. But that that activism is, is just essential. But activism to what end? What goals? By what standards? By what protocols? Those are always matters for debate. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLT Bibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. Because of the complexity of it, and we've seen the shift now where it's become much more of a political terminology, how did it become so politicized? Well, there are different, different ways of looking at the history, but what I've concluded is that the civil rights movement was the, the necessary precondition for this politicization in this way. Before the civil rights movement and then the legislation in the mid-1960s and, and the uh, the, the, the Supreme Court decisions earlier, white evangelicals in the North were Republican, overwhelmingly. White evangelicals in the South were even more overwhelmingly Democratic. Once the civil rights legislation and judicial decisions take place, segregation is ended. And eventually, most Evangelical, white evangelicals say that that's a that's a good thing. There's resistance in the early stages, and some that continues, but but not really not too much. But once once you have the division in the American white evangelical population removed, screen segregation, then it's possible to have a national white evangelical 
mindset. So it's not at all surprising to me that within a generation of the ending of governmentally approved segregation, you have, as, as you referenced already, some Republican leaders in the era of Ronald Reagan saying, can we mobilize white evangelical constituency for Ronald Reagan? And there are white evangelical leaders around the country who, who, who are getting active in a historically evangelical way and saying, if we believe the gospel, we have to believe certain things about how life in the world is to be carried out. And, and you have some very famous instances of uh, people like Jerry Falwell, who early in his preaching career says, we, we don't want to be involved in politics. We, we want to focus upon the, 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 the promise of the second coming. But then lo and behold, by the late 1960s, 1970s, it's really important that if you believe in the gospel, you have to get involved in politics in this way. Well, you, you really can't have a national movement energized by such ideas if you've got a stark political division between evangelical, white evangelicals who support the Democrats, white evangelicals who support the Republicans. But after the ending of segregation, then Republicans make gains in the South. There, there is this opportunity for, for a national movement, and you get what, what is a white national political constituency that eventually will be the most reliable constituency for the Republican Party. And, and now here, here comes more complexity. At the same time, over the same period of years, the most consistent American constituency for the Democratic Party are African-Americans. And among the African-Americans that make up that most Democratic constituency is a huge number of African-Americans who on religious characteristic terms are evangelical. So the two groups in modern, recent American political constituencies that are most clearly identified with the political party are both evangelical groups. One black for the Democrats, one white for the Republicans. And, and that, that's why, if you keep these race constituencies in mind, it seems to me why the, 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 the uh, precipitation of what you've just described begins with the national civil rights activities of the 1960s. Look into the cross Capture life for us Keeping me in mind On that tree you died Three days further on The rising of the sun Seasons change But your love still remains Knowing that what evangelicalism has become in the United States As you've already examined in these two political spheres, how do we juxtapose that with what evangelical is in the global sphere? You can't. <laughs> 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 My 
to. We have to solve these problems no, yeah, on this show. Do, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's, that's a great question. And the more, the more, the more awareness there is about the, the spread of the Christian faith in all its forms around the world, and the more awareness there is of crucial Christian developments in North America with the coming of, so to speak, world Christianity into particularly American cities, but then American life in general, the, the more things get, get complicated uh, around the world. Complicated or uh, clarified? <laughs> well, just complicated. Because, I mean, what does get clarified is that there, there are Protestant movements and a few Catholic movements clearly showing the evangelical characteristics who aren't, aren't divided and aren't, can't be described in American political terms. So Hispanic evangelicals in the United States, which is a growing number, do tend to lean that they're actually more Republican in their political outcome than, than say, Black evangelical groups. But, but they're divided. There's just nothing like the white evangelical Republican constituency. When you talk about it, I mean, there, there, there are very strong Hispanic evangelical Republicans, but there's very strong Hispanic evangelical Democrats in a, in a way that is just not, you just don't see it. The same thing with uh, Asian American Christian believers, Vietnamese, Chinese, Korean. Indian. Indian. Right, yeah. right. Uh, uh, West Indies, Jamaican, uh, African. These are all groups that have in America strong and growing churches. They're mostly evangelical by by the doctrinal characteristics, but but either are uninvolved or not involved as much in the, in the political division. So again, uh, there, there's a conundrum. Is there a word to talk about these people? I don't think there is a word. There, there, there can, you can say evangelical, but then you've got to you've got you've got to say something like evangelicalism religiously defined, uh, as opposed to politically defined, or pe people with tradi traditional Protestant beliefs about doctrine and culture. Well, <laughs> that's that's hopeless because you can't you can't have a phrase uh, when you're on the internet. You have to have one word. It's got got to be punchy. So the, the, the world situation, both outside the United States and then as the world comes into the United States, not entirely, but, but mostly unconnected to the political story in, in the United States. And that is actually just a very important point to grasp for Christian reasons, but obviously for, for cultural and political understanding as well. Question that I think most of my listeners are asking themselves is this. Oh, wait, is it okay to call myself an evangelical? What do you say to that? Well, if, if you're in a conversation and, and you're able to explain what you mean, sure. That, that, but if you're, you know, on the five o'clock news and you got 30 seconds to make a point about something else, you can't take 28 seconds to say, well, here's the kind of evangelical I am. <laughs> and let me now answer your question, but then you'll, you'll be off to the, to the you know, the, football scores or something like that. So I, I mean, evangelical seems to me still, still to be a, a really good word, but increasingly it becomes difficult to use it just because of what uh, connotations are, 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 are helped. We have a, a short essay in the book you mentioned by Tommy Kidd, really fine historian at, at Baylor, who does 
I get pulled into th- these debates, and I, I, I sympathize with with Tommy because I, I I think of myself as my day job is really American history of eighteenth and nineteenth century, and then you get asked to t- talk about these modern things, and Tommy's the same way. But but he 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 has made a really strong effort in articles and a fine book from Yale University Press to say, well, yes, these other things are important, but evangelical really should be defined in religious terms and history of the religious use of the term. It's, to me, a very sound argument, but, but it might be an argument that, uh, you know, he, he's got 15,000 people reading his books and one broadcast on, on the evening, uh, you know, you know, well, I'm gonna, you know, 10 broadcasts, because there's all sorts of different things. I'm, I'm not really optimistic about the future of the word evangelical in American public discourse. I think for world purposes, uh, for, for if you're given a chance to talk about what you mean for uh, the development of, of so much of uh, church life in North America, I think I've heard from a number of sources that the, the only evangelical type or evangelical churches that are, that are growing rapidly in Canada are from, from world constituencies. Many of the of the uh, evangelical type and evangelical churches in the United States that are flourishing are, can be characterized in the same way. So if, if uh, you're in a situation where, where you're able to explain how you're using the term evangelical, primarily thinking about religious emphases and religious tradition, it's a word that's going to work work fine. But in, in a cultural situation where the political snap uses of the of the word are predominating uh, then it's there's a very different story what then do you think are the biggest threats not just to evangelicalism but christianity as a whole in our contemporary society as we said at the beginning history is is cyclical there's always the pendulum shift from one to the other and and as you mentioned earlier it was an insight into understanding human behavior and human culture and civilization knowing what you know and seeing the patterns in history what do you think the biggest threats are today well, I, I think I, I would say, and this would be a kind of theological analysis, but one really based on a, a lot of historical explanation is, is that the, the threats are what they've always been. And that is for people who know or the, the gospel message to overlay that message with a lot of other things um, such that the gospel message is not clear. And, and uh, I'd say historically, uh, I've spent a lot of time working, looking at Christian publications and Christian institutional activities during the American Revolution, during the American Civil War, the lead up to the, the Civil War. Um, and th- those instances, there were people who were, uh, they wouldn't have used the term themselves, but we, we can, they're evangelical Christians, mm-hmm. who said, if you're, if you believe that the we should still follow the parliament, I can have no association with you. If, if you believe that it's necessary to support the union as if it were God's instrument, it's important to support the Confederacy if it's God's instrument, it's the same mistake. It's having other loyalties supersede what in Christian terms should be the foundational loyalty. And that, that Actually, it's easy to make a judgment about the people you disagree with. You, you think that mm. a political position is, is more important than the Christian faith. You, you say you're a Christian, but you really, well, but it's, it's, <laughs> the, the 
the parable of Jesus, you know, if you, if you can see that in somebody else, it probably means you've got something in your life that you're you're evaluating, putting more highly than your, your understanding of the Christian faith. It might be the opposite political position. It might be something, you know, all sorts of temptations. So I don't think there's anything new in, in threats to the solidity of Christian faith. But we, well, but what is new is the character of threats to the Christian faith. The basic threat is always subordinating the clarity of the gospel with, with uh, other things, other stuff, and they, other stuff can be can be almost anything. And mm-hmm. in our, our day, it happens to be a lot of uh, political loyalties. That leads me to another question, and this is probably even bigger than than you as a historian. Yes, you said that other loyalties supersede the clarification or the clarity of the gospel message itself. What do you do, though, when the message of the gospel becomes, it has other things attached to it? Because then the question is, is what is God, what is the gospel? Yeah. It's down to the very essence of the gospel itself. Maybe that's not a question for us today, but it's, it's a bigger, it's a big question. Because even now, as you guys define it in the book, I don't want to. I don't want to say that the gospel is defined by the culture in which it finds itself. The gospel is, def- but different implications of the gospel become much more influential or impacting, debating on what's going on at that moment. Just, just to me, like orthodoxy is orthodoxy, but orthodoxy is most often articulated when it encounters heterodoxy. Just like with the gospel itself, there's there. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. I mean, he literally was born. He lived a sinless life. He died substitutionary atonement. I mean, even that gets into different parts of it, but then the resurrection of the dead. And and you mentioned this in the book where you got into, I can't remember if it was this book or the other book where you got into, they were focusing on the, the incarnation and not the crucifixion or the resurrection. There was an aspect of that part, but to me, I was like, they're bookends. Of course yeah. they're bookends. You need both, but the emphasis depends upon what's going on in that cultural moment. Right. Because even in, in the gospels itself, I mean, you right. have, Right. Jesus referred to his birth in Matthew, and right. in, but Luke doesn't mention a thing about right. it. So right. he didn't right. find it relevant for his audience. Not that it's not. It is. There's a reason why we have the four Gospels. Sorry, I'm just geeking out there no, for I a think, little bit. I think what, it, 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 what has helped me in answering questions like that are, are the, the really uh, terrific works of mystical history and theory of the last 30 years. So Yay! I, uh, I, I've t- told people that at one stage of my life, I, I avoided a midlife crisis by under, by finding out how interesting Canadian history was. And then a little bit later, I had discovered Andrew Walls and Laman Sana and Dana Robert, and, and uh, I, I they allowed me to miss another midlife crisis. <laughs> I think what 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 is so so um, trenchant, so perceptive. With Andrew, I mean, oh, the, the, I mean, it's a lot of people now, but I, I first got it from Walls and Sana and Dana Robert, was that the Christian gospel never comes without culture. It's yes. always enculturated. So the, 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 the life, death, resurrection of Christ is very specific in Jewish culture under Roman Empire of the first century. Okay. So that means just the notion that there's a kind of culture-free Christianity that drops on different cultures just just doesn't work. But then the missiologists go on to say, and this is particularly strong in in essays that I read first in in Andrew Walls, that the character of the Christian faith means that it it is at home in any culture, 
think, think, think what is, is the weirdest kind of social cultural setting you know. And then the one you're in, which of course is the normal, ordinary, right one. Mm-hmm. The Christian faith is always inculturated. And it always can speak to in any culture. And the Christian faith always calls people in every culture to repent of their sin, to recognize the need for forgiveness and improvement. So, so in, in, in a way that I think is just mind-blowing, when you try to wrap your mind around it, Christianity salt, well, solves the wrong word. Christianity exemplifies how the one and the many can get along with each other. There's one incarnation. It's always in, in culture when it appears again, but it, it ties together potentially those who are from this. You get the, the, the wonderful passages in the book of Revelation about people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And you think, well, gosh, you know, if you stop to think about that, when in human history have people from every tribe, tongue, and nation actually gotten along with each other? Uh, not, not even speaking about singing together or praising one thing together, but just kind of not killing each other. <laughs> well, there's the genius of, of Christianity. But it, it's not a Christianity that, that floats above and calls people up. It's a Christianity that enters in and gathers in, in, the, in the world culture. So, you know, I've only been uh, reading these missiologists for 25 years. And some, I think it's going to take... take uh, Oh, actually, centuries to, to, to incorporate what are the, the really strong commitments to human life as it's lived. The mm-hmm. no pie in the sky Christianity, the really strong commitment because the life of Christ was deeply, infinitely committed to human existence. But then also, also to see that, that, that cultural specificity goes along with uh, the universality of grace in all cultures. And, I mean that that is uh, what it what it what it has done for me is to is to make me no longer feeling guilty about really prizing the things that have spoken most clearly and powerfully to me in my culture, and at the same time moving toward trying to respect and understand and have empathy for how the Christian faith has spoken so deeply, as deeply, as profoundly, as clearly to other people and other cultural situations. That, I call it a missiological understanding, but that, that to me is both given confidence and going further in what I think are the, the Christians, Christianity's expression in where I live, but also gaining respect for Christianity's transformations where, where other people did. Culture, in other words, culture needs a lot of reflection by people interested in, in Christian faith. And I think that's one of the one of the deficits of the broadly speaking evangelical tradition that has been much stronger in action than in thinking about action. Uh, you don't want to you don't want to go completely in the other direction and think so much you're not acting, but but uh, thinking about how the gospel is always enculturated, always at home, but then always also calling people to transform where they, where they live. It is think music go forward. Teach my soul to sing your song Even when my eyes can't see 
When I can't seem to carry on I know your hand is guiding me I know your hand is guiding me Missiology is really what we're about. How has the mission of God worked out? Andrew Walls has been a huge influence, as has, uh, you said it differently. I said Laman Sane. How do you say it? Uh, Laman Sane. Sane? Yeah. I I, I never got his name. Whose Religion is Christianity? I I remember that book very well. And especially Walls, the cross-cultural process in Christian history and his stuff is just phenomenal. And I know he's with Jesus now, but I think is instrumental in understanding the future of Christianity and where it's headed because that enculturation aspect, that understanding of culture, culture is shifting with globalization, but individual expressions as they encounter globalization and what that they have is their, the deep structures of thought as James Davison Hunter right. talks about is, is, I mean, we're going way deep right now, everybody, but the, it, it's, it's where, those psychological and the way that we understand ourselves in the middle of the world, how the, how the, how we have been taught to understand ourselves, how we think, how we express, because Christianity always has to, as you said, and, and Walls has said, it always has to be enculturated. Uh, but the question is, is what does it affirm about that culture that it can build a bridge to? And what does it challenge about that culture that has as its idols? Right. And, and we have our own idols that have developed in our own culture and, and have spread across the world with globalization, with YouTube, with the internet, all of those different, different fabrics of it. But that brings me back to another part of something that I think you have drawn upon that I, I wanted to explore a little bit. You, you mentioned, and, and you've written about it, the scandal of the evangelical mind. And, and you were writing it in one, as you mentioned, there are turning points, but there are also cultural moments on why those books are necessary that may not always be needed outside of that time. And what, what I mean by that is you're addressing an issue that you saw. And my question is, is, is that issue, I mean, we're 20 some years away from that book now. Is that issue as relevant as you, look, let me ask a couple of questions. Number one, why did you write the book? Number two, what was the cultural thing that you felt like you needed to address? And number three, has the cultural milieu shifted where that book is still necessary? Those are more or less what I've, I've tried to address in the preface and the new preface and the new afterward to reprinting that Erdman's did of the scandal of the evangelical mind. So the research for the original book was the late 80s or early 1990s. And, and um, it was at a time when um, debates among evangelicals and fundamentalists tended to be focused on uh, on how you interpret the scripture. So. Well, what should be the attitude of Christ honoring, God fearing, Bible reading people toward modern science? I, I used evolution as as a, as a prime example. How how should these same people be thinking about and acting in the uh, political landscape of of the of the late twentieth century? And the, the the burden of the that book was to say that there were some really fine uh, important qualities of fundamentalism that should be carried on, but there were some that should be dispensed with. And I've, I've focused on ways of reading the Bible that, that took the Bible out of its context and, and uh, kind of put it together like a late 19th century jigsaw puzzle. So one, one of the examples was the, the first Iraq war, which led to a huge evangelical market for books on the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. So re- reading Revelation and Saddam Hussein was going to be so and so, and you know. The, yep, yep, I remember very well. So, so those those habits of mind, I thought, were getting in the way of what what would be proper Christian 
approach to life and study in the world, not, of course, accepting everything that was conventional in, in the in American intellectual life, but, but approaching these matters with discrimination and, and uh, with clarity. No, we, we, things have, have changed. Uh, the threat to clear thinking about Christianity in relationship to culture, to the life of the mind, I think comes from the politicization more we, we've been talking about. There, there, at least as I'm aware, and, and broadly speaking, evangelical circles, there's not nearly so much debate today as to what biblical inerrancy means for your approaches to science, your, your, your understanding of the book of Genesis, the book of Revelation, as there was then. In my view, that's not a bad situation because uh, that earlier focus was much of what I was complaining about and writing the scandal of the evangelical mind. What hasn't changed is that there's a sense that the, uh, the, the, the Christian faith implication for intellectual life needs, needs to be developed from the, inside the Christian faith itself. After writing the scandal of the evangelical mind, I worked. It was supposed to be a year or two later on another book, Jesus Christ and the Life of the Mind. It took probably 15 or 20 years to finish. But the, the argument of that book was that, that when you're worried about, as a Christian, problems in science, uh, social sciences, literary theory, you, you have to be listening to what smart people are saying in the world. But it's even more important to be grounded in the truths of the Christian faith. What, what does it mean for God to become incarnate? What does it mean for hope for the world? to come from the incarnate God being killed and to rise from the dead. So the, the, the external circumstances have changed somewhat, but the internal dynamic of what the kind of Christian thinking the church always needs and the world always needs, that that's, remains the same. And it's going deep into the Christian faith itself to have your parameters when you are faced with a, uh, a secular intellectual world, which is all sorts of ideas, the instinct is to say, well, I just know that this is a bad idea. I just know that's a good idea. And my appeal is, well, just avoid the instinct. Try to think through things. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Sometimes the children of men are more uh, uh, alert than, than the people in the kingdom. What in modern literary theory from a Christian standpoint can be accepted? What needs to be rejected? What in uh, modern uh, understandings of science uh, should be expect should be respected. What, but it needs a thought process of considering these matters rather than an instinct and, and a reaction. So I think that situation is the same. But, uh, so I, I was actually uh, pleased that the editors at Erdman thought it'd be it, it'd be in a different situation, worthwhile pu- republishing the book, adding new introductory and concluding material, but but uh, trying to say that the same kind of problem can arise in any circumstance where, where a Christian community is thinking about the world not from a foundation of Christian faith, but simply reacting to what's out there in the broader public. How then do we, and this is a loaded question, how do we then grow the life of the mind as a Christian in a world that's bombarded with so many theories that it seems almost impossible to sift them? Well, it seems to me that that's uh, that's the prime question, or no, not the prime question. It's certainly a very important question that all places training Christian workers should be asking themselves. The uh, if if you're interested in if you think the Lord has called you to be a pastor, 
I think in, in this day and age, one of the demands, proper demands is, is to just counsel your congregation to, to not do the ready, fire, aim approach to problems. A pastor can't pontificate on all sorts of matters, but a pastor can say, well, in this congregation, we have people concerned about issue X, Y, or Z. How can we think carefully, clearly? What, what would be the voices? And, and thankfully, in many Christian congregations, you have people who say, well, let's turn to so-and-so who's expert in such and such. Let's hear what they have to say. Not necessarily to follow them, but, but to, be, to become engaged. Now, you put your finger, I think, on a real problem, and that is that there's all sorts of experts in the Internet that, that, uh, that it's hard sometimes to, uh, to discriminate. I, and I think that's, that's a real problem. And I, I, I don't know if I have an answer. You want, you want to listen to worthy voices exploring problems and solutions, but isolating those, identifying those worthy voices is a tricky matter. You guys mentioned that in this book too, because you talk about how Paula White and a lot of the folks at TBN are qualified as evangelicals, but you're not having the streams of Wheaton and, and TBN interlock. And they're not, they're very, very different. Right. Yeah. I'd, I'd like people to be talking to Kevin Van Hooser, Rick Lentz, David Wells, you know, uh, yeah. I was getting same here. And the pro James Hunter, uh, NT Wright, but, uh, the, these folks, you know, they, they, they want to say on the one hand, this, and the other hand, that, and that, those, those are kind of that way of approaching problems doesn't work. Well, it's that populist understanding where there's not a nuance or an understanding of history or theological nuance. It's in some ways giving people what they want to hear and clearly defined ways that they can articulate and grab a hold of it. But that's the that's where you're saying, oh, it's the loss of the evangelical mind. People aren't thinking these things through and and all that it implies. But you know, we're 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 out of time for today. I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on the show. And I I really appreciated the discussion. Any concluding thoughts that you have for our listeners? as we're talking about evangelicalism? The lesson I've learned from my friend, David Livingston, the really fine historian of science in, in, in Belfast is, you know, if you're a historian, you're probably going to be uh, pessimistic and really down Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturdays, Tuesday, Thursday, <laughs> try to see a little hope. And on Sunday, pull yourself together. So <laughs> I, I think there's just a lot of things to be worried about, to be, uh, concerned about to be really uh, actually frustrated and disappointed about. But uh, Christian faith is something that uh, goes deep and, and has a foundation for hope as well as for discerning of problems. Amen and amen. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. The danger of talking to a historian is that you can get pretty pessimistic. Noel even said so himself, didn't he? I think the way that he points to actually gives us hope in the middle of the complicated story of evangelicalism. God is still at work. The Holy Spirit is moving around the world, here at home too. We've talked to several people over the last few years who have shown just how much our culture has changed, how the global world is our world and the world is here in our backyard. Noel points to something important, something that I believe actually is very vital. You are always impacted by and impacting your culture. We all are, but you are. But because of the way culture works, you always have blind spots. We all do. And part of God's gift to us is the global church, the body of Christ around the world with different cultures and practices, but a common faith. 
And by looking at both our own history and the global church, we can see where we failed and where we've gotten things right, where we need a course correction and where we need to hold the line. Above all, the gospel is central for your pursuit of Christ's mission in your time and place with all that you are. Looking at the past, looking at the global church helps you to rethink the ways in which you have pursued that mission. Where did your culture impact the way you thought about it? And has that culture changed so that you have to reimagine what it means to be faithful evangelical believers in this moment? How do you re-engage so that you can best pursue that mission? That's why we have these conversations to help you fulfill the mission that God has for you. And in the coming days and weeks, you're going to be hearing more about how we want to help you to renew the church so that together we can pursue Christ's mission in all of life. I want to thank our Apollos Water team for helping us to water the world. Be sure to rate this podcast on your preferred podcast platform. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. And I'm on the roll.